950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. Show is pre-recorded today as I got to run and stream another event up north in the metro area. But do have a couple of guests lined up for you in the meantime. As we are going to be speaking with someone from the Moscow Project, Jeremy Vanuk, about... Well, basically, some of the witnesses that Democrats should be pushing to have testify at the upcoming Senate impeachment trial, although technically it kind of has already gotten underway. And we'll also be talking about some of the conspiracy theories we're likely to see pushed by Republicans during that trial as well. Also, did you know there is a special election in the Minnesota State House of Representatives coming up on Tuesday, February 4th. It's District 30A, which represents areas of Elk River and Big Lake, as we're going to be speaking with the DFL-endorsed candidate Chad Hobot, who you might even hear sometimes advertise on AM950, as he is with Social Media MN. But now he is running for the Minnesota House of Representatives over there in 30A. And coming up, we are going to be talking about his candidacy and how he plans on getting to the Minnesota State Legislature in that special election coming up on February 4th. Now, before we get into anything else, do have an announcement to make in regards to the 4 o'clock show that I've been hosting for the past few months. Well, starting next week on Monday, the 4 o'clock show will now become the 2 o'clock show. That's right, my show will now be weekdays at 2 p.m. beginning next week. Now, you might be sitting there wondering, what happens to Democracy Now!, which currently airs weekdays from 2 until 3? Well, we're not canceling Democracy Now!, we're just going to be moving that to 4 p.m. every weekday. So basically, it's just a trade between my show and Democracy Now!, where my show will now air weekdays at 2 o'clock, Democracy Now! will now air weekdays at 4, and for fans of The Matt McNeil Show, no changes there. His show will remain weekdays at 3. So why are we making this move? Well, for a couple of reasons. First up, as you're listening to today's program, you probably realize it's pre-recorded. And while there's nothing wrong with doing pre-records every once in a while, I like live radio. It gives me a chance to interact with you more, and I think we'll have some better content by having more live programs. Also, speaking with our owner, Chad, here at AM950, we kind of came to the agreement that moving my show from 4 up to 2 o'clock will give us a chance to open some doors to having some really great guests on the program as well. So again, to recap, starting next week on Monday, my show will now be airing every weekday from 2 until 3 o'clock, while Democracy Now! will be weekdays at 4 o'clock. All right, we're going to take a short break and then come on back and go to District 30A and talk about that special election for the Minnesota House of Representatives as we'll be speaking with Chad Hobot, who again is seeking that seat that used to be represented by Republican Nick Zerwas. That special election is on February 4th, so it's coming up soon, and we're going to be speaking with the DFL-nominated candidate Chad Hobot on the other side of the break. The progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson, on the 4 o'clock show here on your Tuesday afternoon. To District 30A, we move, which represents areas of Elk River and Monticello and Big Lake, as we are talking about someone who is running in a House special election for the Minnesota State Representatives that is taking place on Tuesday, February 4th, so that is definitely sneaking up on us. We are speaking with Chad Hobot. He is the DFL-nominated candidate in District 30A, and he joins us now on the program. Hey there, Chad. How you doing today? 
Great, sir. How are you? Hey, doing good. Good to chat with you again. And of course, our listeners might be familiar with you here on AM950, hearing your ads for social media MN. But of course, you're now actually running for the State House of Representatives. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for the legislature coming up in a couple weeks here. Well, you, I don't know if you've heard, uh, We uh, in our community here, we uh, we have a, a coal power plant called the Shirko Coal Power Plant. Shirko Coal Power Plant, and that's going to be shutting down. And uh, I'm a local business owner here, um, and we were noodling um, as a kind of a local business is like, how are we going to replace those jobs there? And uh, once you know, we're having some discussions amongst our uh, chamber of commerce and things like that. And uh, we have a, like the, a Google data center coming to our community, which is going to be really cool. Uh, but it's only going to bring 150 jobs, uh, which will be exciting, but it's not enough. And so. Based out of that discussion, when the special election came up, uh, some people just encouraged me to go. They said, you know, you've been talking about these issues of uh, uh, creating jobs and economic development here within the chamber, and you might be a great opportunity, a great candidate to go out there and um, help us uh, uh, target our community for state economic development incentives. Well, that's how we kind of started with it. Uh, but uh, as we got into, uh, as you probably can imagine, when you actually, when you file the run for office, you under, end up uncovering a whole bunch of other things that are important to your community at the same time. And so now we've, uh, uh, in addition to creating jobs and economic development, we've also are talking about some other issues too. Yeah, let's talk about some of those other issues, because looking at District 30A, it does kind of represent that exurban area, which includes parts of Elk River, uh, Big Lake, I believe even a little area of Monticello's in there as well. It's kind of that Highway 10 corridor. It's almost shaped like a hammer, if you're looking at it, where it covers a large portion of Highway 10 in that exurban area. And it's experienced a lot of growth over the years, because even I, Chad, remember as a kid when we used to drive to our cabin on Lake Mille Lacs, Elk River was kind of our midway point and at that point in the 90s it was a very rural town but of course that's changed over the years and that means you guys have a lot of infrastructure needs up there on highway 10 and highway 169 so talk about what you're planning to do in the legislature if you're elected in terms of trying to make infrastructure improvements in that area yeah excellent that's actually a really good question um but i would just uh, I'll, I'll just go back and say our district is actually uh, uh elk river a uh, big lake and one precinct in Otsego, so we don't have anything over in Monticello. But gotcha. if you look at it on the map, you're, it looks like it's, it is Monticello, but it's not. But, um, but going back to your question, um, we, do, we, are, we have been experiencing rapid, uh, rapid growth, explosive growth, you could say. Uh, it's residential growth. And um, as a result, um, you know, just getting around town in our areas, uh, we're, we're a community, like you said, in the, in the past, it was a rural community, but now we got one foot in suburbia. And the other foot is in uh, rural Minnesota. And everybody travels through to go up to the cabins up north. Um, and one of the things that uh, is on the radar here is, as you know, this next session coming up is a bonding year. And what we're going to do in the bonding and a bonding year in this biennium, the session is uh, figure out what projects um, are worthy for the bonding resources. And I've pledged in my campaign to target our community um, within that bonding uh, uh, framework to get money for our local potholes, roads, and bridges. And in particular, the, our county board has a plan to build an overpass, which your listeners might, if they're traveling up north at any time, might want to hear, an overpass uh, in Zimmerman, Minnesota. So then as you're coming through the community, let's say from Rogers, Minnesota, traveling up 101 uh, into 169 through Upriver, there'll be no stoplights all the way to the casino in, in Mille Lacs. 
which will alleviate a lot of the pressure for rush hour of people coming through, but also for the local people that live here. And in addition to that, um, we have uh, we started uh, some road improvements from Highway 10, uh, Becker heading east uh, towards the Elk River, and uh, we need to get the rest of the resources for that too. So that'll be one of my top priorities is speaking up uh, for uh, Sherburne and Wright County to make sure that those bonding resources come into play. Oh, absolutely. That's huge. I, I remember a few years ago, I actually had a contract job where I was doing some accounting work up in Elk River for a few months. And how much of a nightmare that was sometimes to drive up that 169 and Highway 10 area when you still have those stoplights. Or actually, I think it's 101 if I'm remembering the remembering correctly. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. that's going to be massive if you guys can get that set up where there's no more stoplights. Just the traffic flow is going to improve so much not just for people heading to their cabins, but even people locally in town just heading on their commutes. Yeah, we have uh, two really good grocery stores, three really ones good in town here, and I'm not going to say them to favoritism, but one of my favorite ones is on the other side of 169, so I'll purposely won't go there if I have to cross 169 mm-hmm. uh, because it's such a ma- it's hassle to get across there. But also, too, there's a human component, too. Um, we have so many tragic uh, fatalities there because it's such a busy road. And um, by having that, uh, the overpasses there will um, definitely save lives, too. And talking about infrastructure, it's not just adding lanes or getting rid of stoplights or building new roads. You kind of touched on this as well, but it's also maintaining those roads and bridges as well because, well, unfortunately, people are going to be experiencing this, especially in a couple of months. Once the snow melts, we're going to be into pothole season, and that's certainly not a lot of fun. And if you guys can get funds up there in that area, that would certainly make the the driving a whole lot smoother. Yeah, that's the important thing about uh, uh, the, the bonding and uh, budget is trunk highway bills, uh, well, they go a long ways to helping the state highways, right, right? like Highway 169 and Highway 10. Uh, but uh, there's usually not resources for local roads. And you touched upon the fact that we're, you know, it's reality here that we're, we're experiencing explosive residential growth. And all of these pressures are on homeowners up here um, in property taxes to maintain that. And I don't know if you've ever built a new home before, uh, but if you do buy a new home, um, that first year you live in your new home, you don't uh, pay property taxes. The assessor comes out a year later, and then you come online to be, begin paying property taxes. But the needs are still there, and, re, and the, the real needs uh, in the year when all the new people are moving in. And this also segues into our school. Um, so, uh, you know, we welcome all the great new kids that are coming to our school district, uh, but this there's straining on all the resources there too. So in the next biennium um, in 2021, that would be a year where we could talk in the K-12 funding formula for possibly recognizing communities that have explosive residential home growth uh, where the property tax base has matured to help them fill in those gaps for the new students and the special needs of those school districts. And that's another big point to hit up right there is that, yeah, we do need to do something about statewide funding for education. This is just me talking right here, but you look at a lot of communities that have to rely on these local referendums and you're kind of at the mercy of the voters and sometimes it's tough to blame voters for not wanting to raise their property taxes because those can certainly pile up after after a certain amount of time. So yeah, if we can come up with a better formula to fund our schools, I, th- I would think that would go a long way towards, well, just overall improving schools here in Minnesota. And then, yeah, and that's what I, uh, I talked about on my website, uh, chadhobotforhouse.com. Um, I talked a little bit about that, but it's kind of confusing to understand it. Um, you get, I mean, as a candidate, I had to, you know, read up on a lot of stuff to kind of wrap my mind around why those things are. 
but in other counties, uh, this also segues, segues back into my uh, my number one priority of creating jobs and economic development in our area. Is if you look at like Anoka County or Hennepin County, those counties have a mature blend of light industrial, commercial, and homes. Okay, so the the burden for schools, the burden for roads, are well spread out. And there's kind of a stabilizing effect in that in terms of uh, property taxes, right? But when you have explosive residential growth and not a lot of commercial and industrial, um, it puts the burden on homeowners, and that's just not fair. And homeowners, are they're all for, we really want, I mean, we're all for our schools, and I'm one of the top, one of the top advocates there, but they sometimes folks don't understand why those pressures are happening that way, but that's what it takes a leader a state representative to recognize those things and to advocate for your community uh, when you're serving in the House. Let's move on to another major issue that I'm sure is on the minds of a lot of voters uh, in your district and really, well, any district here in Minnesota, and that is the issue of health care. Where do you see room for the DFL and the GOP for possibly working together to, well, try to find some sort of solution to lower health care bills here in Minnesota? Because we are, of course, in a very unique situation with the only divided legislature in the entire country. And if you are elected, you will be working with a Republican Senate, even though the DFL does control the House of Representatives. Where do you think we have some room for possibly trying to find some ideas to lower health care bills? Well, uh, as you know, uh, if, if, uh, just a casual reader of the news, you'll see that um, uh, MNSURE is not as popular as it could be, um, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Um, and there's also some confusion about uh, what what we can do with uh, the exchanges with uh, the position of the White House in, in D.C. and also the Congress, too. And so it's kind of a... Uh, the biggest thing I think we can do uh, for healthcare is to clarify uh, as a state, uh, but we're going to take some uh, coordination with our, uh, our federal government and, our, and the White House to figure out what the heck are we going to be doing. We're waiting for this health care plan that it still has not been revealed by the president um, that relates to Obamacare or uh, uh, you know protecting pre-existing conditions, but we haven't heard a clear plan on that. And so we need to have a partner on the other side of the aisle to be able to move forward. From what I know, uh, I, I, from what I know, I haven't heard anything on the Republican side about that, but I do know that there are voices that are out there that want to show up and make it right. Uh, the access to minister and all other things like that. And certainly if you're elected, this uh, I'm assuming is going to be a priority, not just for you, but really everyone in the state legislature, at least it should be. And that, of course, is emergency insulin funding, because to me, it's still unbelievable that we don't have that emergency insulin funding bill passed through the state legislature yet. Yeah, and on that point, you're absolutely right. And I don't know why we're still studying it. And if you're one of your listeners are out there, DJ Riley, if you're listening, I forgot to bring that up. And I'm so sorry, because that was the top priority that we had talked about in depth. Uh, my friend uh, DJ is uh, uh, dealing with these issues with insulin, so um, it is a top priority, yep, and I will work my butt off to make sure that we can find a solution, but, you know, sometimes, you know, in this whole, uh, con- in the country that we're dealing in, the country we're in now, there's a lot of partisanship, and I'm interested in calling balls and strikes. It doesn't matter to me if a person um, with a good idea, the pitchers wearing a red jersey or blue jersey, Republican or Democrat, if it's good for the people, we should really do it and take our, um, you know, and put Americans first. And this insulin issue just seems to be one of those no-brainer ones. And and I think um, 
as a personality, uh, my personality is I, I can work with other people and I will work with uh, the Republicans and I'll work with Democrats to make sure that we can find a solution to this and not kick the can down the road any longer. It's, it's, it's been kicked down the road too much, too much already. Well, it was just reported a few weeks ago, I believe, the uh, end of 2019, that we do indeed have a budget surplus here in Minnesota. And we've heard lots of ideas in terms of what we should do with that surplus, with some people saying, hey, we should invest that in education, invest that in infrastructure. Others saying, hey, let's actually use that to refund Minnesotans through tax breaks. We've also heard people talk about, well, let's actually put that in the rainy day fund. What are your thoughts on what we should be doing with the budget surplus that we currently have here in Minnesota? Yeah, I put a lot of thought into that, uh, and I've, I put a lot of thought into that, and, and as it relates to my community, and there seems to be a general consensus here, and I'm one of the people that are in that general consensus that the, probably the fairest way to handle the budget surplus would be to do Jesse-style tax rebates, and I know the debate is growing about what to do with that budget surplus, and I remember 20 years ago when I got my my tax rebate, it was a time when I, my car just broke down, um, and I my I had a student loan payment that was due, and the mortgage was due, and it wasn't a big check. But boy, it sure helped me get through that month. And I'm, 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 my guess is that there's other people that would use the, the rebate check the same way. And that would be the only way I think we could, um, uh, you know, give it back uh, uh, equally um, and fairly. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have other needs that the money could be used for. But there's a time and a place in our, in our biennium system and our legislature for handling those things. So like this next session coming up will be bonding. And that's where we work on the roads and bridges and, 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 and uh, capital improvements. Uh, the next year is the budget year, and that's where we talk about uh, K, K-12, uh, the, the K-12 funding formula. And that's where we handle a lot of those other um, uh, needs. But I did have a meeting with a state senator that said that after inflation, when you adjust for inflation, that the budget surplus is more like about $300 million and some change. So that may put a lot of people's hopes on what to do with that. The uh, the surplus, uh, may, you know, may not be a reality for anything for anybody's plan, uh, but I hope it will be. And that was part one of my conversation with Chad Hobot, again, who is running in that House of Representatives special election in District 30A coming up on Tuesday, February 4th. Coming up on the other side of the break, we'll touch on some more issues with Chad and also how he plans on winning in what is a very heavy Republican district. So stay tuned. That's coming up next. Listening to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Let's get back to our conversation now with Chad Hobot. Again, he is running in that special election for the Minnesota House of Representatives in District 30A, which takes place on Tuesday, February 4th. That district represents areas of Elk River, Big Lake, and a little bit of Monticello. So we'll continue talking with Chad now and touch on some more issues. So, Chad, I want to move on to some kind of larger issues larger ideas and issues, because looking at District 30A, the former representative was Nick Zerwas, who used to represent District 30A, and looking at the history, this is a very heavy Republican district that's been that way for quite some time. So how do you plan on talking to voters in that district that typically vote Republican and think, well, I've never voted Democrat in my life? Well, there's a fair number of those uh, voters that are out there, and there's a fair number of the people that feel strongly on the Democratic side. Um, 
for whatever it's worth, uh, I don't think a Democrat has actually went out and knocked on a door out here in 20 years. And um, I have. And uh, the people that I've met that would probably lean Republican, um, it's not as strong as a Republican monolithic group as you'd think. Uh, these voters that I've been meeting um, that would I would say um, would I mostly identify Republican are fiercely independent-minded people. They want to have common sense. They know what good government should look like. And uh, they're just as frustrated as Democrats with all the the uh, the partisan uh, you know uh, partisan um, fighting that's going on in almost every area of our country. They just want to get results. They want to get things done. And I think those voters that I'm meeting are um, ready to elect a state representative that just wants to call balls and strikes for the community and stay out of the stay out of the lane of all the uh, pointing fingers in this direction and. Uh, and, and finger pointing uh, coming from every direction. So um, I found that to be re- re- reassuring and uh, refreshing to meet voters like that. And I think you hit the nail on the head on the fact that, yeah, for so often Democrats really didn't even compete in rural or even ex-urban areas. And we saw that they had some success back in 2018 where, yeah, people would get their doors knocked on that said, well, I've never actually had a Democrat talk to me or try to get me to vote for them. And I think just the idea that even if you're competing, yeah, you certainly can open some minds to maybe voting in a way that they haven't in the past. Yeah, that's uh, it, it's a, it, it's it's something that um, I, I've been really uh, reassured by when I've been talking to people. So I guess we'll find out on February fourth. <laughs> yeah, that that we will. So as you've been knocking on doors and talking to folks in the district, what are some of the big issues that they've been telling you that they'd like the state legislature to cover in the next couple of sessions? Well, believe it or not, I mentioned tax rebates. That's come up several times. Um, which suggests this kind of independent uh, strain that runs through my district here. Um, people still remember those, the Jesse-style tax rebates from 20 years ago. Uh, the other thing is the, uh, the roads. Um, you know, this, like we, we touched on earlier in the interview that the explosive residential growth here and all the traffic that's coming through for commuters um, it has caused a lot of friction with just getting around town and for people that travel through. So those seem to be, those seem to be the two top issues that I that I see that are out there, uh, but there's another one too, um, and uh, I'm going to segue back to, uh, to this one. Um, you know, in 2016, I don't remember if you remember on TV we had all this. We were talking about the old, old opioid crisis and things like that. And we threw a lot of money towards uh, helping people, and in our area, Sherburn County, I think it's Ottertail County and Crowing are probably the top three counties in the state that have people that are suffering from some type of addiction, either alcoholism or something like that. And so they, you know, we're looking for solutions to reach out to the people that want help uh, and, and that, and we don't want to leave them get, get left behind. So uh, I've talked about in my campaign that I quit drinking alcohol myself about seven years ago and the faith-based program seemed to be the ticket for me. So I, I've been talking to folks in the community about maybe this would be an option for people that uh, other things aren't working for. Um, so that's a, that's also a concern of people in the in our area here is is helping people in this uh, this area. Man, that election is certainly sneaking up. Just looking at the calendar, two weeks away from today. So I imagine over these uh, next couple of weeks here, Chad, you're certainly looking for volunteers, door knockers to help out with your campaign. Correct. I am uh, Chad Hobot for House dot com. Uh, if, if you want to go door knocking or. Uh, make a small donation. That would be welcome, and I, I appreciate that. 
Uh, but yeah, we're out there knocking on doors and, and making phone calls and meeting people. Um, um, and just get it out in front of a lot of people. Yep. We've been speaking with Chad Hobart. Again, he is running in District 30A in that special election, which is taking place just two weeks from today on February 4th. So that is definitely coming on up. So, Chad, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Really appreciate it, and best of luck in that election coming up in two weeks. Thanks, Brad, and have a great day. And coming up next, we'll be chatting about the impeachment trial taking place in the Senate and talking about who Democrats should call as witnesses as that Senate trial heats up as we'll be speaking with Jeremy Vanuk of the Moscow Project coming up next. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson on the 4 o'clock show here on your Tuesday afternoon. Well, with the Senate trial for the impeachment of President Donald Trump getting into full swing this week, thought we would bring back one of the guests we had last month, which is Jeremy Vanuk. He is with the Moscow Project as he's been following the Ukraine and Russia scandals closely for the past few months and years as he joins us now on the program. Hi there, Jeremy. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely glad to have you back on the program. As you've certainly been following all of these scandals closely for, well, a long, long time. I was about to say months, but it actually has been years since all of this stuff has been kind of bubbling towards the surface. And it's kind of reached ahead now that we are going to have a set of trial regarding the impeachment of President Trump. So one of the main things that we're going to have objections to from Republicans is, who is going to be allowed to testify, if anyone? And my question for you, Jeremy, is that being that Democrats likely are not going to get, well, who they want to testify or really anyone, how should they prioritize who you think they should try to get to testify at the Senate trial? That's a great question. There are really a number of witnesses who I think stand out as people that the Democrats should call. Uh, we actually put out an issue brief basically listing 11 of the people who were either called by the House but refused to show up, some of them even subpoenaed, or just others within the administration who seem like really ideal candidates to come and actually talk about what they saw. The one that leaps out the most is uh, National Security Advisor, former National Security Advisor John Bolton. He has actually come out and said that if he is subpoenaed by the Senate, then he will testify. And he could testify to several significant events, one of them the meeting in which Gordon Sondland explicitly told members of the Ukrainian government, he says, that getting a White House meeting for Zelensky was contingent on them announcing that they would be investigating uh, the Bidens, that they would be doing these investigations that Donald Trump wanted. Another person who I think is a clear candidate, who I think Democrats should do everything they can to get to testify, is the person who has really given up the game, who admitted to the quid pro quo, which is acting White House Chief of Staff, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney. You know, he had that press conference back in October, it feels like years ago, but it was really only a couple months, where he was asked repeatedly by the press, you know, basically, was this a quid pro quo? Was this offer on the table? And he said, we do that all the time, get over it. So there are a lot of people who Democrats can and I think should call, who the Senate should call, but the one who really stands out as there's no excuse not to is John Bolton, because he said he's going to testify. 
and Mick Mulvaney, who has already effectively confessed to doing exactly what Democrats allege and what Republicans refuse to acknowledge. So let's talk a little bit more about John Bolton, because, yeah, he certainly is the name that I think uh, just about everyone wants to see testify. But the concern I would have about him is that would he actually have damaging testimony to give against President Trump, or could he just basically disassociate himself from the entire thing and say, hey, you know, I tried to distance myself from the Ukraine scandal when I heard what was going on with the withholding of aid, so therefore I don't know anything. What are your thoughts on that? I think that the biggest signal that Bolton has something that Trump is worried about, that the administration worries would be damaging, is the fact that they're working so hard to make sure that he doesn't testify. There was a big report out of the Washington Post over the weekend about how the administration has been toying with the idea of saying, well, Bolton can testify, but he can only do it behind closed doors in a classified setting where the American public would never actually get to see what he has to say. And what we know from previous testimony is just how strenuously he objected to this. You know, this is somebody who has been a fixture of Republican administrations for effectively my entire lifetime for the past 20 years. And when he first heard it, he called it a drug deal. He said that Giuliani was a hand grenade who was going to blow everyone up. He was the first person that we know of to bring this to the National Security Council's lawyers. So while I get that there are concerns about what would he bring, you know, he is a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, would he be willing to continue obfuscating on Trump's behalf, I think that the evidence we've seen so far suggests that he does have a lot to say, and he may be willing to say it. Yeah, I would also think from Bolton's end, possibly just looking at the other side of why he would have damaging information or have motivations to bring it forward, is that, at least in my eyes, it seems like he had disagreements with Trump on national security and foreign policy, not necessarily, at least in my opinion, in a good sense, being that, of course, John Bolton has never seen a war he didn't like, but could he have other motivations as well for possibly wanting to go after Trump? Uh, Absolutely. One of them is, as I understand it, that he has a book coming out. Um, That seems to be a common move by some of these former Trump administration officials, people like Omarosa Manigault, who I still can't believe was part of the Trump administration, uh, who quit in a, you know, big, uh, big furor, and then went on, I believe it was Big Brother, Celebrity Big Brother. Um, This would effectively be John Bolton's version of that, only instead of being a former reality show contestant who does it on reality TV, he's a former administration official, former, you know, bigwig in Republican politics, who could bring what he knows to the Senate in advance of his book coming out as kind of a teaser. So let's talk about another name that's been in the news for the past few days. Is This is someone who's been giving a number of media interviews, and that's Lev Parnas, who was basically going on record as saying, at least on some of these media interviews, that, oh yeah, pretty much everyone knew this was going on exactly, whether it was Donald Trump or even another name that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention, and that is Mike Pence. Can you talk a little bit about Mike Pence's possible involvement in this scandal as well? Absolutely. Pence, I think, is very interesting because he's worked so hard to keep his nose clean to basically stay out of all of Trump's scandals. But this one, it's pretty hard to come out of the full picture and not come away with the belief that Pence was at the very least aware of it, that he at the very least knew about the July 25th phone call. He appears to have been briefed on that by one of his national security advisors. He appears to have known that his job 
going into his September meeting with Zelensky was that he was going to be uh, telling him that they wanted these investigations of corruption, that being, of course, the covert that Trump's circle appears to have chosen for how they were going to portray these investigations. But just to touch on Parnas real quickly for a second, one of the really remarkable things about the interviews that he's given is just how much documentation there appears to be, not just in all of the information that he kind of dumped on the American public that he gave to the House Intelligence Committee that they've released over the last week or two, but also there was that letter, for example, in which Giuliani said, I am representing President Trump in a private capacity in these meetings with uh, Zelensky, and I'm doing it with his knowledge. Well, it's impressive to see the actual stationery on which Rudy Giuliani was making that claim, but he told that to the New York Times months ago. He told it all the way back in May that he was going to Ukraine as Trump's personal lawyer to do a political favor for him by stoking up these investigations. So it'll be interesting to see just how much more of Parnas's allegations are corroborated, but we're already operating from a base where much of what he has said is things that we've known about for months, just providing additional information. And then what we also saw yesterday, I believe, with Parnas is that he's, at least as attorney, is asking that Attorney General William Barr needs to recuse himself from the investigation that's ongoing with Parnas. So obviously Barr has certainly been someone who's been running a corrupt Justice Department, to say the least. So what kind of concerns could Parnas even have in terms of Barr possibly retaliating against him? The fact that Barr is not recused from the investigation in the first place, I just find completely appalling. I mean, to start with, there's the fact that he was effectively put in as attorney general to help Trump <clears throat> cover up the end of the Russia investigation, that the reason Trump got rid of Sessions was because Sessions wouldn't stop the Russia investigation, and he brings in a guy who, what's he best known for, stopping Iran-Contra. There's also the fact that he was named in the July 25th phone call and the whistleblower complaint about the July 25th phone call, and yet refused to recuse himself from the DOJ's deliberations about whether they would send the whistleblower complaint to Congress. I don't know what specifically Parnas has in mind about what he believes that Barr is capable of doing, but I think we've seen from his history that he is capable of laying himself on the line for a president in order to defend him, as he did with uh, George H.W. Bush by authorizing the pardons of Casper Weinberger and the rest of them in Iran-Contra, as he did with that incredibly misleading letter and press conference in advance of the Mueller report. And I think that Parnas is right to be at least worried about what Barr could do to derail the case if he is not recused from it. So talking about some of the defense that Republicans might use during this Senate trial, and one of the ones they're certainly going to use is that, well, there's no smoking gun of Trump being on a phone call or no recording of him saying that he was directing aid to be withheld to the Ukraine unless we have an investigation of the Bidens. But obviously there's so much other evidence that, that points to the fact that we have a cover-up going on, that we actually did have a quid pro quo, or even, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, basically bribing going on. So talk a little bit about that, because, yeah, we probably won't have that smoking gun, because Trump is, well, for another lack of a way of better putting it, he's smart enough not to be on record, or not smart enough to not be on a direct phone call 
directing a quid pro quo because it kind of almost reminds me of being like a mafia boss who is smart enough to know that you can't go on record and say this, but there's so much other evidence pointing to the fact that this did occur. I'm not sure that there isn't a smoking gun. I think that the July 25th call is about as, you know, smoking as you can get. He specifically brings up the investigations immediately in response to Zelensky saying that we would like to be receiving more aid from the United States. There's that statement out on the White House lawn where he said, you know, if I were Zelensky, what I would be doing is investigating the Bidens. And you know who else should do that? China. And the fact that that hasn't been investigated at all, that's something that I would like to see at least some looks into. But on top of that, we just have overwhelming evidence, just a mountain of people coming forward and testifying, documents attesting to the extent to which Trump was hell-bent on getting these investigations announced. And one of the things that I would like to see, for example, is if there's any record of that phone call that he had with Gordon Sondland in that Kiev hotel, in that Kiev restaurant, and whether there is a record of that from Trump's end of him effectively telling Sondland, as multiple witnesses have testified, that he only cares about the things that will help him in Ukraine, that he only cares about the investigation into the Bidens. Right, and again, what? I think uh, a really damning piece of evidence that I would love to see presented is just Mulvaney's statement that, of course, it was a quid pro quo. We do this all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there certainly is. Yeah, definitely a, a lot of evidence. Yeah, just outside. Of, yeah, what you were talking about, too, as well. So uh, another defense we're likely to hear from Republicans is the fact that, well, there's nothing wrong with delaying foreign aid to a country, even though when you actually look at past history and even the legality of it, well, this actually was highly unusual to delay aid to a country, basically without reason, correct? This was one of the most, I thought, ridiculous defenses that Republicans put forward, not least because, as we just saw literally last week, the Government Accountability Office actually came forward and said, yes, it was illegal. What Trump did by withholding aid that was specifically put aside by Congress without giving any sort of justification, without going through the proper channels, was illegal. And that, I think, is one of the most damning things in this whole saga, is that If Trump had wanted to withhold aid for a legitimate reason, then there are all sorts of ways that he could have done that. There are procedures that he could have gone through. There are people he could have consulted with and explanations he could have had the executive branch draft. And he specifically did not do that. He specifically made sure that nobody would be able to track it, that nobody would be able to get an explanation from the executive branch. They didn't start putting out this well, it was about corruption, well, it was about, you know, this and that and the other, it was about getting European countries to contribute more. They didn't start putting that out until after they got caught and released the hold back in September. A couple more questions for you, Jeremy, before we have to wrap things up. So who else do you think we should be paying attention to that's going to be implicated that really has not been getting a lot of attention paid to in the media and, well, at least among folks in general? Rick Perry is somebody who stands out, uh, Trump's former Secretary of Energy. He was one of those, quote-unquote, three amigos who were bumbling their way through Ukraine trying to get this done for Trump. He also appears to have been trying to effectuate changes to the board of Naftagaz, the Ukrainian state-run energy company, at the same time that Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman and perhaps Rudy Giuliani were doing the same. I think that 
Um, there are a lot of different people within the administration. There's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who, of course, oversaw the department that should have been out there protecting Marie Ivanovich, the ambassador to Ukraine who was the subject of this smear campaign, and appears to have completely just looked the other way while it was happening. He's somebody who I think I would love to hear him actually held to account and hear him actually asked about the effect to which, the extent to which his department was effectively being used to uh, run Trump's extortion scheme in Ukraine. We've been speaking with Jeremy Vanuk. He is with the Moscow Project, and you can find more information about them at themoscowproject.org, as they've been following basically since these investigations came to light and these corruption scandals regarding Ukraine and Russia. Uh, they've been following those closely over at the Moscow Project. Jeremy, really appreciate you joining me on the program today. I'm sure we'll be checking in with you more as the Senate trial continues. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's going to wrap things up on your Tuesday afternoon. A reminder about that programming change that takes place starting next week on Monday. My show will now be airing weekdays at 2 o'clock, and Democracy Now! will be weekdays at 4. So again, just a trade between my show and Democracy Now! That change begins next week here on AM 950. No change to the Matt McNeil Show. That will remain weekdays at 3. Thanks for listening, and I'm back with a live show tomorrow. Tomorrow.